Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Podcast 13. In this podcast, we are continuing our discussion on acute coronary syndrome. So if you have not listened to part one of acute coronary syndrome, you probably want to head over to Podcast 12 or Episode 12 in order to bring you up to date on what we have completed thus far. So for those of you that are brand new, welcome. I so appreciate you being here. And for those of you that are back again for another episode, thank you so much for joining me for another podcast. Just a couple of things before we jump into the content. And that is in the podcast description, um, you will find a link to my website. Please hit that link, head over to my website and subscribe so that you can be up to date on the latest courses that are coming your way, the latest podcasts that are about to be published and that have been published. Also on my website, you'll be able to find my contact information in case it would benefit you, your nursing organization or your nursing facility to have me come to you and provide you with my two-day CCRN program. This can be done either in person or I certainly am more than willing uh, to do it in a webinar or remote format. So I look forward to hearing from you on my website. So let's get into the content then for ACS part two. And where we're headed now is talking about drug therapy. And we've always been taught that one of the first things we think about with emergency treatment of ACS is think about MONA, correct? Morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. Not necessarily in that order, but it's an acronym that can be helpful. But one of the questions that comes up is, is it time to break up with MONA? In other words, do we always use MONA on everybody? Well, let's talk about this for a second. Let's start out with the M, morphine sulfate. Now, morphine sulfate obviously is for the pain aspect. It reduces catecholamines, which is a nice thing. Can be used if your nitrates are not working in relieving the chest pain. We can give two to four milligrams IV. That That's all good. Some other good things about morphine is that it can be a venous dilator to a certain extent, to a small extent. And that's why we see, one of the reasons at least, why we see when we give morphine to patients just in general, because of venodilation, we can see hypotension. One of the things is though, is that when you have somebody that comes in with, let's just say an inferior wall MI, those patients may become pretty hypotensive on you if you give morphine. So we need to be very cautious about administering it. And it also puts into play the use of crystalloid in patients that come in with inferior wall MI. So remember that up to 30% of patients that have an inferior wall MI have infarcted their right ventricle and the right ventricle likes fluid. It's very stretchy. And so we find that with inferior wall MIs, those folks need to have some fluid in order to maintain a decent pressure and to allow us the opportunity in many cases to administer morphine. 
So now let's look into the O part of Mona. O stands for oxygen. Okay, that stands to reason. And I tell you what, over the years, we used to give oxygen to everybody that came in with chest pain. So you came in, complained of chest pain, you would get two liters no matter what your saturation is. However, according to the latest guidelines, um, oxygen is not recommended as routine use unless the patient has an O2 sat that's less than 94%. In fact, our ultimate goal is to get the patient's sat to 94%. That's really where we want to be. And we would then achieve that, of course, by administering oxygen. But we're not just doing it for everybody. And the reason for that is, guys, is because oxygen is not not a benign thing. And so when you administer oxygen to somebody that has a sat of 94% or greater, what can happen is the development of oxygen-free radicals which in and of themselves are arrhythmogenic. And so we want to stay away from administering oxygen unless there, there is a, a definite need. And 94% SAT is our goal. Now let's get into the N for Mona. The N stands for nitroglycerin. Of course, nitroglycerin uh, given in sublingual form can be given in an IV drip form. And we're going to be talking a bit about it more later. I have a, a section that's actually dedicated to nitroglycerin. But of course, we use the nitroglycerin as a coronary artery dilator. It also is a venous dilator, a systemic venous dilator at any dose. As far as arterial dilatation, though, we'll find when we talk about nitroglycerin, you need a whole lot more than just a few mics of nitroglycerin to get systemic arterial dilation. And this is where I'm calling upon you to separate in your minds the coronaries from the systemic arteries. I mean, nitroglycerin will dilate the coronaries at any dose. You can wave it over the bed and the coronaries start to dilate. Whereas the systemic arteries do not dilate unless you're in the higher dosage range. And we'll get to that momentarily. Last but not least, we have the aspirin as the A in Mona. And of course, 160 to 325 milligrams chewed immediately. And that person will likely be on aspirin then indefinitely. So let's move on, guys. Let's move on to uh, nitroglycerin. And this is something that I had mentioned that I'd get back to. So let's talk about it. Nitroglycerin is the drug of choice in unstable angina or heart failure associated with acute myocardial infarction. It can be given as adjunct therapy in heart failure patients for preload reduction and coronary artery vasodilation. Also, hypertensive urgency with acute coronary syndrome is another indication for uh, nitroglycerin, as is prophylaxis and long-term management of patients that have recurrent angina. So when we talk about nitroglycerin, we know that it is a vascular smooth muscle relaxant and vasodilator, and it also, to a little bit of an extent, has antiplatelet activity. It reduces O2 consumption. It, it reduces preload through venous dilatation, and it can reduce afterload at high doses by reducing or dilating the arteries. So getting back to what I said before, nitroglycerin is going to increase coronary artery perfusion at any dose, any method, any means of administration at any dose, we will see an increase in coronary artery perfusion. We will also see systemic venous dilation at literally any dosage range. And so when we talk about venous dilatation, venous dilatation is going to result in preload reduction. And remember, preload reduction is filling pressure, right? The filling pressure of the right and left heart. Now, 
When we talk about systemic arterial dilation, we don't typically see systemic arterial dilation unless the patient is at one, typically one mic per kilo per minute, excuse me, of IV nitroglycerin. So they're definitely on the higher dosage range. And I know that you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute here, we don't even routinely run IV nitroglycerin in mics per kilo per minute, but rather we run it at uh, mics per minute. And so let's just take the 100 kilogram male, okay? Must be from Wisconsin. Anyway, we take the 100 kilogram male at one mic per kilo per minute. You'll notice that I made the math very easy. That means that in order to get arterial, systemic arterial dilation in that 100 kilogram male, he would have to be on 100 mics per minute of nitroglycerin. And so you can see definitely on the higher dosage end. And you know, what's really weird is if you would look at like a physician's desk reference at nitroglycerin um, administered in an IV form, it always says something like there's no upper limit of normal. There's no established maximum as far as IV nitroglycerin. And I don't know, I find that kind of scary that we would say that about a drug, right? That there's no established maximum. And so what you'll find and check out your hospital, your hospital will have established a maximum. I know for many facilities, the established maximum is 200 mics per minute as the maximum. Now, another thing that we know about IV nitroglycerin is that it needs to be in a glass bottle because the plastic of a plastic bag uh, that many IV solutions are diluted in will absorb the nitroglycerin. So a glass bottle is, is important. The onset is pretty immediate. And the thing about IV nitroglycerin is you can start the drip at five or 10 mics per minute. And then it can be increased by that five mics per minute every three to five minutes. And so, you know, once we get up to an infusion that is more than say 20 mics, then we can even go up by increments of 10 and 20. So really the overall titration of the drug is pretty rapid. The other uh, issue having to do with nitroglycerin IV is sometimes patients can develop tolerance after 24 to 48 hours of continuous administration. And really, guys, we see this uh, true in even topical or oral administration of nitrates. You know, when I first started on the step-down unit uh, that I worked on in Milwaukee, um, I worked on a 42-bed cardiac step-down unit, and we gave so much nitro paste one inch nitro paste Q6. Everybody on the unit knew that at 6A, 12P, 1800, and then 2400, we knew that, you know, it was time to do the nitro paste rounds. Until we find, found out that patients were develop, developing a tolerance when it was given on an around-the-clock basis. And so now what we see is that when a patient is on a topical nitrate, that topical nitrate is removed at bedtime so that there is a nitrate-free period. And that nitrate-free period should be somewhere around 12 hours. And that's why come morning, when the patient wakes up and starts getting more active, of course, they put their nitro patch back on. Well, we see also some of this tolerance developing with IV nitroglycerin as well after the 24 to 48 hour point, and we find ourselves needing to go up on the patient's nitroglycerin dose. In terms of complications, or I should actually say side effects, hypotension is a big one. And it really is a common problem in the elderly. It is also a common problem 
in anybody that's borderline low on volume. Because remember, we said that nitroglycerin is a great venous dilator. And then think about where the majority of your circulating blood flow is at any one given time. About 60 to 65% of your circulating blood flow is venous at any one given point in time. So if we increase the capacity of the, the veins by dilating them, then of course the patient's blood pressure can drop. That's why the venous bed is also called the capacitant circuit. And that's something that we take advantage of quite frequently in critical care is dilating and constricting veins in order to decrease or increase preload based on the patient's need. Another side effect in terms of uh, nitroglycerin is pronounced hypotension. If the patient has taken uh, Viagra, Levitra, Cialis within 36 hours of administration. So that's a very important thing to, to ask. It's also a very important thing to realize that these drugs, Viagra in particular, is not only given to males. It has other uses as well. So asking, asking the patient is really uh, important. Bradycardia, dizziness, flushing, flushing he- uh, headache, all of those are potential side effects. Another take-home point here is that when a patient is on a nitroglycerin drip, Remember that it may antagonize the anticoagulation effects of heparin. So the take-home point being when you have the patient both on nitro drip and a heparin drip, you may find yourself needing a bit more heparin in order to be therapeutic. So the thing to keep in mind, I guess, would be if the nitroglycerin is DC'd, we really should have a handle on where our, our heparin um, PTT is. So looking at whether the patient then becomes super therapeutic. So when you discontinue the nitroglycerin, it probably would be a prudent thing to follow up your uh, PTT in order to make sure that you're still within therapeutic range. Last but not least in our emergency treatment of the patient coming in with a STEMI is to get that patient to the cath lab. And so if somebody comes in, walks in the door with a STEMI, we've got 90 minutes from door to balloon time. And so a lot has to happen in that amount of time, getting the cath lab crew in, getting the patient on the table and getting the vessel cannulated, all of that within a 90 minute period of time. If the patient is brought in by EMS, we have 120 minutes from first medical contact is what we're, we're looking at at that point. So very crucial to reperfuse. We've heard for a long time that time equals myocardium. So we want to make sure that we get the patient uh, cannulated as soon as possible and the stent deployed and the vessel reopened. We need to reestablish perfusion. If your hospital is a hospital that's accredited by the Joint Commission, they look at this data very, very closely to make sure that, you know, just minute by minute, the right things are happening in order for you to have chest pain accreditation. And so that uh, door to balloon time is extremely important for patient outcomes, particularly. Now, what are some of the post-PCI complications? This is something you're going to need to know for either the CCRN or the PCCN exam. Reocclusion, acute reocclusion, it happens. Coronary spasm where the patient experiences chest pain, you see the ST segments abruptly go up. Uh, Coronary spasm is pretty nicely treated with nifedipine or procardia. It's a calcium channel blocker in the dihydropyridine family. And so patient, uh, the patient might need that. Cardiac tamponade, that could occur because of a perforated ventricle dysrhythmias of any sort 
related to a variety of things. It could be reestablishment of flow a lot, which is a good thing by the way, but oftentimes when you reestablish flow, you allow oxygen free radicals to leave the, the site that was injured, let's say by the occlusion, you have oxygen free radicals now that are liberated into the body and they are very arrhythmogenic. That's why whether you're talking about reperfusing using PCI or reperfusing using a fibro, uh, fibrinolytic, either way, when you reestablish flow, you can have a washout effect of oxygen free radicals, which are arrhythmogenic. Pseudo aneurysm is a possibility. Definitely hemorrhage at the site, uh, hematoma. We could also have acute dissection of the coronary, which then would lead us down the path of tamponade as well. We can have embolic complications because just think about it for a second. If you have atherosclerotic plaque in your coronaries, chances are really, really good that you have atherosclerotic plaque in your renal vessels and your ascending aorta, descending aorta. So, you know, as we, depending upon the, you know, the access site that is used, as we extend that catheter into the heart to be able to, um, perform this procedure, we might be knocking off some plaque. That is a possibility. So we could have a plaque embolus. We could have a blood clot embolus. We could have a chronic problem with restenosis, hypotension, bradycardia. Those are particularly common when you pull the sheath, hypotension and bradycardia. And so you want to make sure that you're very ready for anything that could happen when you go to pull a sheath after PCI. So let's next talk about thrombolytic agents. And I'm going to take a direct quote from the AHA guideline for the management of ST segment elevation, myocardial infarction. And basically what they say is in the absence of contraindications and PCI is not available, Fibrinolytic therapy should be given to patients with STEMI and onset of ischemic symptoms within the previous 12 hours when it is anticipated that primary PCAI cannot be performed within 120 minutes of the first medical contact. And this actually, guys, is considered a class one intervention. Level of evidence is A, level A. So very important. You know, living in Wisconsin, sometimes we get into situations where because of a blizzard, flight is not flying, ground transport is not transporting patients, and everything is really, you know, on hold. We can't transport a patient. And if you're working in a smaller hospital, let's say one that does not have a cath lab, then now there's some additional decision-making. If you can't get the patient transported out, then you need to think about clot buster therapy. That just makes sense. So what are some of the agents that we use for clot busting? Well, Alteplase, in addition to unfractionated heparin, Retaplase, which is also Retavase, in addition to unfractionated heparin, and then Tenectoplase or TNCase, in addition to unfractionated heparin. And so uh, those are the primary thrombolytic agents that are used currently for patients that don't have access to PCI. The one thing that I want you to keep in mind though, is that when we use a fibrinolytic, what we are treating is we are treating the terminal clot that clotted off the coronary. We are not fixing the problem. The patient still will need PCI. The patient still will need, whether it be angioplasty with stent or perhaps they might even need uh, bypass grafting. They need intervention. So be careful on the exam. Be very sure that you know what they're asking for. 
when they ask for a definitive treatment for the, the STEMI patient, a definitive treatment, just think definitely. It, it definitely deals with the problem. Think PCI with stent. Uh, think about coronary artery bypass. Those are definitive therapies. When it talks about, when the test mentions emergent therapies, well, that's where we could have either PCI, because PCI is both emergent and definitive, whereas fibrinolytic therapy is only, it is only emergent because it doesn't deal with the plaque. So if you were 95% plaqued up and you had that clot that came in and occluded and you busted up that clot, that 95% plaque will still stay there. And so that's why even after fibrinolytic therapy, PCI is warranted. Now let's talk about absolute contraindications to the use of fibrinolytics. Well, the patient that's actively bleeding, aortic dissection, cerebral neoplasm, blood dyscrasias, severe uncontrolled hypertension. So we can't get it under control. That's the key. So that would be blood pressure equal to or greater than 180 systolic over 110 diastolic. A stroke within the last three months. Recent, as in within the last couple of months, intracranial or intraspinal surgery or trauma, closed head or facial trauma within the past three months, or the patient with cerebral vascular disease such as an aneurysm or an AV malformation. Relative contraindications, which of course means that clinical judgment would be applied here, would be recent, like within the last 10 days, major surgery. Recent, again, within the last 10 days, GI bleed. High likelihood of left heart thrombus, such as the person with mitral stenosis or atrial fib. An INR greater than 2, acute pericarditis significant liver dysfunction, pregnancy, and diabetic hemorrhagic retinopathy. Now, what is going to tell us that we have reperfused after we've given a thrombolytic? Well, pain ceases, ST segment returns to baseline level, and this is really a cool thing to see if you uh, can witness it in the cath lab. It really is. Um, or, you know, in the emergency department, that ST just drops back down to, to baseline. And then you usually wind up having some dysrhythmias as a result of that. And, um, the number one dysrhythmia is typically idioventricular. And the second most common reperfusion dysrhythmia is VTAC. You also expect to have a CK washout. So we would expect to see the creatine kinase go up as we wash it out or wash it away from the area that uh, is undergoing injury and actually sequestering that CK. Who's at risk for reocclusion? Well, patients that have had a previous MI or a big MI, patients that develop hypotension or get real shocky, or those that go into pulmonary edema, they are the most likely to uh, reocclude. So what are the complications of fibrinolytic therapy? It stands to reason it would be hemorrhage, 80% incidence at the site of the, the puncture, um, GI, up to 20% incidence there, intracranial bleeding, 1% incidence. Reocclusion, of course, that's a complication. We're monitoring for new onset of chest pain, new onset of ST segment elevations, and then we talked about reperfusion dysrhythmias. So I think it would probably benefit you since idioventricular is one of them for you to have the code cart nearby in order to be able to pace if needed or VT to be able to shock if needed. So that would just be a prudent thing. So let's talk about on the inpatient side now, how are we going to treat acute coronary syndrome on the inpatient side? Just think about A, B, C, D, E, A, antiplatelet drugs, 
anticoagulation, ACEs or ARBs, aldosterone blockers, B, think beta blockers and blood pressure management. C, think about cigarette cessation and cholesterol. D, think about diet and diabetes. E, think about ejection fraction and exercise. And this comes from one of my favorite books, one of my favorite references, and that is the Washington Manual of Critical Care. And I'm currently using the third edition of that. And that comes from Washington University in St. Louis, their School of Medicine, a very fine book indeed. So let's look at each one of those antiplatelet drugs. We're talking about aspirin. We're also talking about the P2Y12 receptor inhibitors, and that would be drugs like Plavix, Effient, and Berlinta. And um, these receptor inhibitors should be given, the P2Y12 receptor inhibitors should be given for one year to patients with STEMI who receive a stent during primary PCI. In some cases, that's extended longer. Typically with clopidogrel, we're talking about 75 milligrams daily for a year, pasigrel, 10 milligrams daily for a year, and ticagrelor, which is also known as Berlinda, 90 milligrams twice daily for a year. As far as anticoagulation, for patients that are treated with primary PCI, a uh, couple of options you might, might see there, and that is unfractionated heparin or angiomax. Angiomax is typically uh, given throughout the PCI, and once the PCI is over and the angiomax has run through, it is discontinued. For patients that have been treated with fibrinolysis, now we're talking about um, Lovenox, unfractionated heparin, or fondaparinu, also known as Arixtra. These are some examples of anticoagulants that can be put into use. Another drug class that we need to discuss, and this has to do with uh, PCI, and that is the glycoprotein 2B3A receptor inhibitors. This would be RealPro, Integralin, and Agristat. And as I said, these would be drugs that affect platelets, and these drugs are used primarily during percutaneous coronary intervention. And so let's think about this for a second. We know that acute coronary syndrome begins with a crack in the plaque, and at least in most cases. So you have a crack in the plaque, platelets come on the scene, that's just their job description, right, to plug up this crack, and when platelets come to the, the scene of this crack plaque, their cell surface becomes activated, and what happens when the cell surface becomes activated is that we have the glycoprotein 2B3A receptors that will then, once activated, call fibrin on the scene. Because think about hemostasis for a minute. What happens? Well, first platelets come on the scene, and then there has to be like this fibrin meshwork that ultimately forms the stable clot. So when you give things like RealPro, Integralin, or Agristat prior to PCI, you are preventing the platelets from clumping and calling fibrin in order to form the stable meshwork of a clot. Now, very commonly, not only are these drugs um, used during PCI, but they might be used for the first few hours following PCI as well. So again, RealPro, Agristat, and Integralin. They are glycoprotein 2B3A receptor inhibitors. They prevent fibrin from linking up to the platelet cell surface. Let's get into now talking about the B, and that is beta blockers. Um, beta blockers are used in order to decrease cardiac work, reduce infarction size, and limit recurrence of angina, and they also decrease the likelihood of sudden death. 
So in the acute phase, in the emergency department phase, we may be seeing metoprolol, five milligrams given IV every five minutes times three doses initially, unless, of course, contraindications are present. So if you had a person, for example, that was very hypotensive or bradycardic or had cardiogenic shock, you would not be administering IV metoprolol to those people because you would be making matters worse. In the long haul, the patient will be on an oral beta blocker to follow. So during the inpatient and upon discharge, the patient will be taking uh, daily PO beta blocker. Now the main mechanism of action guys for beta blockers is that beta blockers block circulating catecholamines. And so by doing so, you can see where that would decrease cardiac workload and reduce infarction size. We want to keep blood pressure under control. The general goal is keeping that blood pressure less than 140 over 90. And for patients that have renal insufficiency or diabetes, the goal is lower, keeping their blood pressure less than 130 over 80. So again, blood, uh, a rule of thumb, a good rule of thumb is that blood pressure control should be maximized using a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor before resorting to any other types of blood pressure medications. So let's finish up this section on acute coronary syndrome by talking about the complications of acute MI. And I like the acronym, again, taken from the Washington Manual of Critical Care, third edition, one of my favorite references. I like the acronym FEAR AMI. FEAR AMI. FEAR stands for, the F is failure, E is embolism, effusions, and pericarditis. A is arrhythmia. R is rupture or regurge. A is aneurysm. And of course, MI is recurrent myocardial infarction. So we're going to take a look at each one of those in order to finish up our episode on um, acute coronary syndrome. So failure... One of the most powerful predictors of post-MI survival, guys, is the presence of left ventricular dysfunction. So there's a correlation then between left ventricular dysfunction and the size of the infarct. So we might range from mild signs and symptoms, such as the presence of dyspnea, orthopnea, cough, maybe an S3, maybe some crackles, all the way to cardiogenic shock. 10% of patients with an inferior posterior MI will experience RV dysfunction, where we'll see patients that have hypotension, they have high central venous pressure, elevated jugular venous pulsation, as well as if they had a pulmonary artery catheter in place, we would see a normal looking wedge pressure because this is a right-sided issue. Wedge looks at filling pressures over on the left. E, embolism. Up to 20%, guys, 20% of all MI patients will experience a mural thrombus. Now remember, the the, uh, term mural means wall. And so we're talking about a blood clot that's literally sticking to the inner wall of the ventricle. And get this, up to 60% of patients with a large anterior MI will experience a mural thrombus. So it stands to reason we're going to identify this by echocardiography. And if we find one, anticoagulation therapy has to be considered. So we may be looking at heparin or Lovenox followed by warfarin therapy, because we know that there always has to be that bridge while we're getting warfarin therapy initiated. Now, pericarditis, that's another one. So pericarditis, we typically would see signs and symptoms of pericarditis in the first few days, all the way up to six weeks following an MI. 
And so what it relates to, of course, is pericardial irritation seen in a transmural infarct. And again, transmural is through and through. So it goes all the way through from endocardium to epicardium. The symptoms of pericarditis include pain that's accentuated with with deep inspiration, pericardial friction rub, might see WBCs and an elevated sed rate. So elevated WBCs and sed rate improves with sitting up and leaning forward. So be aware of the person that, you know, you tell them to lay back. I want to listen to your heart and they've got their bed bolt upright and they don't want the put, want to put the head of their bed back. Radiation, perhaps to the scapula. Uh, this patient can have ECG signs that really look scary, like the patient's having an MI. You can see the ST segment uh, elevations kind of everywhere, and you think, oh my gosh, are we having a global MI here, or what's going on? And then pericardial effusion may be present, and so when somebody comes in with pericarditis, we do a echo in order to see if there's a pericardial effusion. And Remember that it's not just MI patients that have pericarditis. The other population that always comes to mind for me is the renal patient, the patient with chronic renal failure, goes on to develop pericarditis as a result of uremia. So we do an echo to make sure that there's no fluid accumulation in the pericardial sac because this could lead to tamponade. How are these patients treated? These patients are treated with NSAIDs, high-dose aspirin, or colchicine sometimes is used twice a day. There's also a type of pericarditis post-infarction that's called Dressler's syndrome. And while the signs and symptoms are very similar to the pericarditis we just discussed, Dressler's syndrome is an immune-mediated type of pericarditis post-infarction that is treated with high-dose aspirin therapy. So let's move on then to the A in fear AMI, and that stands for arrhythmias. Arrhythmias can be anything from accelerated idioventricular rhythm, which we said is commonly seen after reperfusion. It could be monomorphic VTAC, polymorphic VTAC, and keep in mind that because VTAC can occur with low potassium and magnesium levels, it really is important in these patients to keep the K at least four and the mag at least two. Very important. Another type of arrhythmia is, of course, AV nodal block. For example, in the patient with inferior wall MI, we typically see a Mobitz type one, which is also called a Winky Bach. It's typically transient. But man, these people can get pretty slow. So we want to be prepared for any possible events. So we have to make sure that we have things like atropine and pacing available to us. Now, sometimes we need to even um, insert a temporary transvenous pacemaker for an inferior wall MI that develops block, but it's typically very temporary. With an anterior, the block is more severe. So with an anterior MI, we may see either a Mobitz 2 or complete type of block. So we should be very prepared for temporary transvenous pacing, which may indeed ultimately be followed by permanent pacing. Let's move on to the R in fear AMI, and that is rupture and regurge. When we talk about ventricular septal rupture, well, what would lead us to believe that somebody has ventricular septal rupture? This patient gets shocky pretty quick. And we have a person that develops new onset of a pansystolic or holosystolic murmur, which is best heard at the lower left sternal border associated with a palpable thrill. Also, they develop signs and symptoms of worsening biventricular failure. And so this person gets shocky pretty quickly. If there's a PA catheter in place 
and a gas was drawn from the right atrial port and one drawn from the PA distal port, what we would see is a step up in oxygenation between the right atrium and the pulmonary artery. Now, of course, I'm sure you're thinking about echo and yep, echo needs to be in there. Echo needs to be done because that will show us that we have movement of blood from left to right. Now on the test, I am telling you this guys, you need to know about this step up in oxygenation between the RA and the PA. Just, you just plain old need to know it guys. Because realistically, I know that we would do a stat echo. I know that not everybody has a PA catheter in place, but on the test, you need to be aware that this is the answer to ventricular septal rupture. A step up in oxygenation between the right atrium and the PA associated with a pan-systolic or holosystolic murmur and a patient that is clearly experiencing biventricular failure. Acute mitral regurge. Well, acute mitral regurge is typically due to papillary muscle rupture. It can be a tearing of the chordae tendinae off the papillary muscle, or acute mitral regurge may be due to a ventricle that is so full, a left ventricle typically that's so full of fluid that that fluid and pressure is actually pulling on the annulus or the ring around the mitral valve, causing the leaflets to not be able to approximate. So you would have acute mitral regurge in a person that really doesn't have a valve problem, but because of so much fluid that is actually expanding the left ventricle and pulling on the annulus or the ring around the mitral valve. Now, now you have a person that is going to develop and show you signs and symptoms of LV failure, florid pulmonary edema. If they have a PA catheter in place, which I can tell you they have in place when you're taking the CCRN exam, you are going to look for an elevated V wave on the wedge pressure or pulmonary artery occlusive pressure tracing. Now, let me just go back and explain a little bit about this V wave. When we talk about a wedge pressure tracing, we have an A and a V wave. An A wave represents atrial contraction. A V wave represents atrial filling. Now remember, when the atria fill, it makes sense that the mitral and tricuspid valves are closed. So therefore, if you have an elevated V wave, a time in which the mitral and tricuspid valves should be closed. If that V wave goes up, that means you have acute or chronic regurgitation. So you have a pan-systolic, holosystolic murmur, a patient that goes into florid left ventricular failure and pulmonary edema, and a big V wave on the wedge pressure tracing. And the way that you identify a, way, a, a V wave is that the, the um, V wave will occur between the T and the next P. So it said that the V wave, to look for a V wave, look in the T to P interval, and you will see that it's huge associated with new onset of murmur. And a lot of time people will want to argue and say that that's a PA pressure waveform, but from a timing standpoint, that excuse me, that cannot be true. It has to be an elevated V wave because of the timing and the fact that it's located between the T and the P. Expect that as a high scale score question on your CCRN. Ruptured ventricular free wall, that also falls under our, under our, our section. This is a patient, you know, that is going to experience tamponade we're going to have, you know, the jugular venous distension, the muffled heart tones, the hypotension, equalization of chamber pressures with a PA catheter. And believe me on the exam, a PA catheter is going to be in place. Now you've got a person that typically goes into PEA and does not survive. So again, rupture and regurgitation, very huge, um, and deadly complications to keep in mind. The 
<clears throat> A, so we have fear, AMI. A stands for aneurysm. In the presence of a left ventricular aneurysm, the patient's mortality increases by sixfold, guys. And arrhythmias are the most frequent cause of death. How do we suspect that a patient has an aneurysm post-MI? Is that patient has persistent ST segment elevation. And so that person, of course, needs to be echoed. And what we see is what's called paradoxical wall motion. In other words, when the ventricles contract and empty and kind of, they kind of ring out, that aneurysmal section actually pooches out or pops out like a balloon. That's called paradoxical wall motion. Of course, paradox meaning that something is doing something opposite to what one would expect. Now, obviously, this person's risk for thrombus development is huge. And so they are typically treated with long-term anticoagulation, with warfarin. And if the aneurysm is so large that it impairs ventricular function, the patient will likely need to have surgery for a aneurysm resection. Recurrent myocardial infarction, the last part of fear, of course, this is a deadly complication of AMI, recurrent myocardial infarction. Some of the post-infarct causes, keep in mind, of ST-segment elevation include reinfarction, pericarditis, aneurysm, and stent thrombosis. And so, again, treating the underlying cause is where we need to be with that. So, guys, I hope this part two of acute coronary syndrome has been very valuable to you in helping you to prepare for the CCRN exam. Please click on the link below to um, head over to my website and sign up to receive information as to future podcasts. Please become a subscriber. I would very much appreciate it. And also, if you need my contact information, if you'd like me to come and speak for your facility, you would find it there. So again, thank you for your time and patience and listening to part two. And I look forward to uh, being with you in future podcasts. Take care, guys. Thanks.